you remain standing, please turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, and we'll be reading from verses 14 through 22 this morning, Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 14 through 22. Hear now the word of our God. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. With that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, and I also conquered as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, this is another sermon in our ongoing periodic series called Matters of the Heart, Um, a series focused on ways the Bible addresses the core struggles that affect all of us uh, in our pit in the pit of our hearts from pride we've covered to contentment to fear and anxiety to afflictions to unbelief and even most recently how we view money and then to today where Jesus confronts a church about the pitfalls of becoming lukewarm in the heart to a lot of us the book of Revelation is an intimidating book to try to get into because of its hard to interpret passages, strange symbol-laden language that we find throughout. But remarkably, if you read the book of Revelation with the correct perspective, meaning if you're understanding that it's written with a specific genre in mind, that of an epistle with apocalyptic prose, you'll see how relatable actually and how awe-inspiring it is. So full of hope if you're a believer and vivid in ways we could not imagine for ourselves. But before the letter moves into these spectacular visions, starting in chapter 4, the first three chapters of the letter are actually directed towards these seven churches located in Asia, referenced in chapter 1. And these seven churches were all located in present-day Turkey, and it's called Asia in the Bible because this is how the Roman Empire viewed this region. And so let me just read chapter 1, verse 11. It says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergamum and to uh, Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And so the apostle John, the author here, is instructed to write to these seven churches. Why seven? History can show that, you know, there was actually more than seven churches in this region at that time. So why these seven? Well, seven has such symbolic connotations. Many of you guys know this. Seven in the Bible means completeness, fullness. And so seven is significant, uh, significant because the letter, the whole of the book of Revelation is for all the churches. 
for all ages, for every place. It speaks to every single context you find the church. So even though it's, you know, specific towards these seven real churches, it's meant to be looked and applied to the fullness of the universal church, again, for every age. So all the warnings we see to the seven churches even apply to us here in Elgin. And so remember that as we look at today's specific text. Now, if you look at your Bibles, I want to break it down into four parts, and I'll repeat these as I go along. Four categories, a rebuke, a diagnosis, a call to repentance, and then the fourth and final, a true fellowship. A rebuke, a diagnosis, a call to repentance, and we'll conclude with a true fellowship. So number one, a rebuke. Look at verse 14 if you can. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. This angel is now addressing Laodicea, this church, this, the last church here. Within the context of the seven churches, Laodicea and Sardis were actually the only churches not praised for something by Jesus. It's only rebuke. And John is writing down these words of Jesus who is described in verse 14 as the amen, here is defi- amen, which is defined in one lexicon, a title of Jesus as understood as God's ultimate statement of affirmation and fulfillment to his people. He is the amen. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God. For his glory. We pray in the one whom all of God's promises are true. This is why he's referred to this. Then it says he is the faithful and true witness. Scripture refers to Christ as faithful and the true witness in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And so this is the Lord who was faithful to the will of the Father. He is the beginning or the ruler of all creation. We see this in Colossians chapter 1 and the identity of Jesus. And then look at 15 through 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. With that you either were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And we'll cover in a moment the layers behind this rebuke, the reasoning in the next section. But at first glance, it's because of the temperature and taste of this church It's off. It's become bitter, undrinkable, if you're tracing the metaphor. Remember, this is written symbolically, not that the church is some edible thing, but that the church should taste metaphorically a certain way, spiritually a certain way. And again, we'll cover what they were doing, but as one scholar notes, the church in Laodicea knew all about bitter water. Roman aqueducts would carry water from a hot spring five miles away, And by the time it got to the city, the water had become lukewarm and bitter. Or listen to one Reformed scholar who wrote this background about this context of the water. Laodicea's, uh, he says, water supply had to be provided from a distant source through pipes. The resulting water was lukewarm and barely drinkable. By contrast, the neighboring town of Hierapolis had medicinal hot springs and neighboring Colossae was supplied by a cold mountain stream. Christ urges the church to be refreshing cold or medicinally healing hot rather than like the unhealthy Laodicean lukewarm water supply, end quote. So they would relate to something that is neither 
hot nor cold. They knew that in their context, neither soothing nor refreshing, but just lukewarm and bitter without good taste. And that's what we think is meant here, that Jesus wanted refreshment when looking at his church. When you were a kid and came in from the cold, you wanted hot chocolate, not coagulated, lukewarm hot chocolate or lukewarm chocolate. Or on a 100-degree summer day, you wanted something ice cold, not room temperature and tasting off. The church had lost its true taste, its character. And the straightforward warning is Jesus will spit it out. What a graphic image that is. It's a natural thing to do. When something is off, something is bitter, you expect something to taste a certain way, and when it's not, you simply naturally spit it out. For me, I'm not that picky with water taste. I don't mind tap water. But those 100-year water fountains, you know, like in parks, they have this metallic taste. You know something is off. I was in the city, I think, the past week, and I saw just a a scorched runner just come to a, a city kind of fountain, which is probably, like a, again, 100 years old, and all he did was just wet his mouth, and he just kept spitting it out, and, and I knew that he wasn't drinking it. And I said, sir, you're going to be in my sermon. <laughs> and so somewhere along the line, this church went bitter, lost its true taste, its true mark of what a church should be and built on. And so what about the phrase, neither hot nor cold? Now, some might have thought that this verse meant you either have to be really fired up, hot for God, or the opposite, and cold-hearted and distant from God. When I was younger, I would interpret it this way. Just don't be in between, Robin. But, of course, that's not what is meant here. Taste as you should, refreshing to the Lord. But why would Jesus spit this church out? Uh, what are the layers behind this rebuke? Now we're getting to that reason. Number two, the diagnosis. The diagnosis or the reason behind the rebuke. Look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. But realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, this church had tons of worldly resources and influence. Many of you probably didn't know this. Because Laodicea was doing very well financially. It was a financial center in this region in Asia. And so when the city had an er a huge earthquake, they didn't need any assistance from the Roman Empire. Why? Because the city already had that much money. Actually, they even helped other cities that were in need for natural disasters. And so the, naturally, this congregation had a well-off di disposition. But what had crept into this church was pride a self-reliance, a self-dependence. If you have lots of money, resources are not enough money or resources. Pride and self-reliance smacks in opposition to God. What do I mean by that? As in, I have all that I need. I don't really need you, God. Or I don't have much at all, but I'm too proud to ask you, God, for help. That's another form of self-reliance. I can get myself out of this mess. In a way, to the former example, though, is a parallel to Hosea 12.8. You don't have to turn there. It says, Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. Listen to this. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. <laughs> Ephraim is representing Israel here, is prideful, even to the point that they didn't think they were sinful. 
And here's the parallel to the church in Laodicea. They were slowly but surely lulled to think that because they were self-sustaining, because everything was paid for and they had a surplus of resources, they didn't need to rely on God as much. And so perhaps in their self-reliance, it must have equated to their quote-unquote sinlessness. They must have thought they were pretty righteous by living so well. We hear that even in the 21st century, that churches that preach this health and wealth gospel, if you're doing well in your health and your finances, God must be so pleased with you. You must be maybe quote-unquote sinless. As in Hosea, the sentiment was that sin couldn't be found in them. And it's ironic because when you think that way, it's ironic because that's so sinful in itself. Again, verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Really, the diagnosis is clear. In their pride and self-reliance, they couldn't see all their shame. You see, friends, as other New Testament scholars have noted, when you think you don't need anything, you don't need, you really need God in your life. If that's your case, then, then there isn't any need for the gospel in your church, if that's our attitude. That's the crux of the matter. When you realize you don't really need God in your life, then there's really no need for the gospel to be preached in your church. There isn't a need for gospel truth, a forgiveness and redemption, and there's no need to talk about gospel transformation when you think you're just doing fine, thank you very much. And I think that's the scariest place to ever be in your life. More so than tribulations that surround you. More so than when you feel so tempted in multiple ways. More so even when you're persecuted for your faith. The scariest place to ever be is when you think you don't really need God and his gospel. That, my friends, is a pitiful predicament to be in. I mentioned this before. One of my older member, uh, mentors when I was in my mid-20s in his discipleship group, a pastor, he said, when I get up in the morning to, before he goes to bed at night, he, at the end of the day, how does he know if he had a good day? And he said he was tempted to say, I had a good day because look at all, how many good works I had accomplished or how many people I touched or how much compassion I showed. That was a good day. And he started to realize that was a trap for self-righteousness, that he could sleep well if he knew that he was a, a good person, a quote-unquote good Christian. But that was replaced with this awakening to what gospel life really is, is that no matter the highs and lows of that day, he said, if I was reflecting on the goodness of Christ in his gospel, and that even for that heinous sin that he had just committed, or that horrible thought that if he went back to Calvary, if he went back to the cross, repeatedly throughout the day, he said at, at night, he would say that was a good day. But that doesn't seem to be where the Laodicean church is. Historians have noted that the church in Laodicea never is mentioned historically as being persecuted. When thousands of people are being persecuted in the early days of the church, I mean thousands, and persecution is not really seen at the Laodicean church, that means probably perhaps their message that they preached 
was pretty acceptable to those from the world. Meaning, if you're speaking truth and the gospel, that is actually, as 1 Corinthians 1 says, offensive to those who are perishing. Something is off if it's simply left alone and accepted, especially in the first century AD context. If a church in North Korea openly talks about being a church and is never persecuted, perhaps that's a good indicator that their message could be, and I'm not saying this is for certain, but it could be a compromised one, a church that is not about the gospel, perhaps catering to the government regime and their expectations, let's say. And you may well think, well, that doesn't happen anymore. But I've known people, even most recently, in the last couple of years, that have been in China trying to become missionaries and support pastors in this uh, region, only to see their pastors incarcerated along with some of their members. But then they also, if you've heard in China, have these government-sanctioned churches that are kind of set up, maybe even as props. As long as you're not going against our government, you could, you could be a church and therefore pushes many churches underground. Well, something that the world can digest without any offense, oh, that's maybe a compromised church. That's pretty much our church saying nobody is sinful. Everyone is going to go to heaven. We just have to be better people, and we'll get there. Or horribly saying we don't need a Savior, actually. We don't need the forgiveness of sins. We don't need the atonement. We don't need redemption and on and on. And that might help us avert persecution. That actually might help grow the church, ironically. But it's certainly not the gospel. It's certainly not having the right taste of what a church should taste like to Jesus. No, that kind of church would be what we see from the text, lukewarm. Or how the church in Laodicea sold themselves out to the ways of the world in the form of depending on wealth to be their salvation, or their indicator that they are just God's favorite. They moved away from being a gospel church. And so, whoa, this is a pretty weighty diagnosis to hear. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus offers a remedy, even as he rebukes this church. He offers himself and his gospel. And that leads us to number three, a call to repentance, a call to repentance. Look at verse 18 through 19 if you can. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. He's providing a way. He's not saying, well, I've already spit you out and you're just done. But he's providing a path to repent. He counsels the church. I love that. He counsels the church. He pleads for them to repent after his rebuke of them because Jesus, he cares for them. He calls them to turn from wickedness, from self-reliance, their quote-unquote complacency, their lukewarm taste and attitude towards the gospel and what a church should be. Because he loves the church, verse 19. And he's telling the church in this manner of discipline or rebuke because he cares for them that he laid down his life for the church. And he says in verse 18 that he counsels them to urge them to remember the gospel. And you say, well, I don't see that word. Where are you getting that from? Buy from him gold refined by fire. 
believe in him, his gospel good news, using the term of gold to maybe get their attention. Stop looking to earthly gold as your treasure and salvation, but look to the spiritual gold and treasure of Christ. Today we're inundated. I get so many junk mail and spam of buy more Bitcoin or get more obsessed with this ETF or your 401k or this resource to make you rich. And Jesus is selling, though, something far superior. This verse is not about buy from him as in purchase or earn salvation from him, but buy as in believe, have faith in Jesus to be truly saved. And truly saved people will put their hope and trust in Christ alone, but we're prone to wander, just as this church in Laodicea. And so out of compassion and love, Jesus says, your wayward, come back. Come back to me. Leave your pride. Leave your self-reliance behind and turn back to me. And of course, this reference to buy from God comes from the words of Isaiah 55. I referenced this last month also during communion. Where Isaiah 55 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. God is not saying, why did you buy that TV or why did you buy that film, The Blank? But he's talking about why are you looking for salvation and satisfaction in all the wrong places? What a relevant passage for the church in Laodicea and, of course, our church for that matter. Come and buy from the Lord without money and without price. Isn't that the gospel? That the, God, that the grace from our Lord is a gift and is free and we just believe and accept the free gift with joy and gratitude and the soul jumping with thanksgiving that as the passage says, we accept the Lord's forgiveness and believe and repent and then, wow, look what the Bible says, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may now be seen and, and salve this medicinal ointment to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Just picturing the scales of our unbelief falling right off. This is the great benefit of believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, Jesus, he always provides the remedy. Will we go in faith and receive that? We never provide the remedy for ourselves. There has to be an intervention, actually a divine intervention. And Jesus offers it to his, his church. And so when you repent, when the church of Laodicea repents, that's then that's when you see true fellowship. And that leads us to our final point, our final category, true fellowship. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. You see, first, verse 20 is not this evangelistic or a witnessing type of verse, even if there may be some unbelievers in the church already. This is a genuine church of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, when you repent and rediscover the gospel and what you should really believe in and depend on, that is when your true fellowship with Christ is renewed. As one PCA scholar, Rick Phillips, notes, this is an offer of enriched personal communion with Jesus. What a great precursor 
to going to the Lord's table in a moment. Philadelphia Pastor Donald Barnhouse said, this is done by coming back to the word of God. And so if a church neglects the word of God, oh, that is when we become bitter and lukewarm. But Barnhouse is saying, Jesus is saying, come back. Come back to what is proclaimed. And I said this before, but if you're a true believer in Christ, your fellowship with Christ can never be revoked or somehow just disappear, just like your union to Christ can never be severed. But we all are prone to wander. And wayward living and gospel forgetfulness, or what the Puritans would call gospel amnesia, has a way of leading in all sorts of wrong directions. And Jesus is counseling all of us to come back. And it's not this simple, okay, I'm not mad at you anymore type of response from the Lord, but an intimate portrayal of fellowshipping over a meal with the Lord in the home. It reminds us of the comforting words of Jesus in John 14. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. <laughs> what a promise. I, I definitely thought this last week. I, I don't deserve your promises. I don't deserve your forgiveness. I don't deserve your mercy and grace. I was actually meditating on that a lot. I just felt this overcome my soul that I don't deserve this. But yet he says, in opposition of what my own condemning heart says, oh, we will come to you and make our home with you. And you just say, I, I, it's so hard to accept that because I'm so undeserving. And so if you move away from the gospel in your life, your need for Christ, and, you f and find yourself delved deeper then into the pit of pride, self-reliance that muddied your disposition in the first place. And this was the call to the church in Laodicea, verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his promise. This is simply saying that if you persevere in your faith to the very end, of course, we know that the Spirit preserves us to the very end. You will spend an eternal life with God. If you uh, persevere to the end, it will prove that you were truly saved to begin with, and you will fellowship with Jesus, not just in a temporary way, but forever. And then finally, verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I wish I could preach today about all the seven churches, but he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says. The Spirit leads us to the truth, to our Savior Christ. Even those of us who are saved, we need to hear and be pointed back to Jesus over and over again. And so this verse reminds us of Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so why preach this passage well, I think it confronts all our hearts. You might say this is a sermon for a church that has way more resources than us, way more people, way more buildings, way more et cetera, et cetera. You'd still be missing the point. This is about complacency about the gospel, about self-reliance, about that pitiful sin of pride. A church that tastes right to God is one that holds on to the gospel message day in and day out who continually calls the church to repentance and asking for the forgiveness of sins, both individually, like we do every Sunday, but also corporately. You know, 15 years ago, when I was first getting into ministry, 
it would be so easy for me to preach this passage, and I probably did, good thing that wasn't recorded, but I probably would have preached it, if you don't want to be lukewarm anymore, you got to get fired up, you got to get fired up for God, I'm going to give you 25 ways to do that, right, and then sell it on cassette tapes or whatever, You need to do this better. You need to do that harder. You need to go all the meetings the church offers. You need to evangelize every hour and every day. Work, work, work. I probably would have preached that. And I guarantee you, maybe a lot of them who would hear that kind of message would say, I'm there. Let's get fired up for God. And then a month later pass and you say, I'm not fired up anymore. (laughs) And I would go through that roundabout way. Get fired up. Oh, no, I'm not fired up. Get fired up. Oh, gosh, I'm so sinful. I'm not fired up. Fifteen years later, it's pretty clear that's not what Jesus is talking about. Rather, he was getting at the eternal, internal heart, not the external work. He's getting at the internal heart and not the external work. And so having said that, A church that tastes right to God is actually a praying church. Why? And listen carefully. Because a praying church is essentially saying to God, we are needy. We need you, God, in our lives. We need to resoundingly say over and over to you, God, that we are needy, that we are dependent on your grace and mercy, not on our own devices, not on our own resources. We are needy. We are not going to depend any longer on our talents or giftings or our ways. We need you. And I'm not saying our church is complacent. Only God can convict us of that if we are. But we can, what we can learn from this passage is to stay on guard over our hearts, to stay watchful over our hearts, to not be complacent and lukewarm with the gospel and what the gospel points us to. As I said before, this letter is for all the churches, for all ages and all regions, and so we should be humble and say this is probably for us too. So we need to hear from it and be blessed. And through the grace and peace and strength of Jesus Christ, we then commit ourselves to a church that tastes right to the Lord, and we can only do that, quote, my dear friend, I am a poor sinner still, and I have to look to Christ every day as I did at the very first. I am a poor sinner still, and I have to look to Christ, I have to look to Christ every day as I did at the very first. So brothers and sisters, let us pray, let us look to Christ, let us long for him and depend on him as we did at the very first. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the church of Laodicea that can serve as a warning for us to not depend on, fill in the blank, anything that seems to rise above you in our attempts of self-reliance and dependence. Forgive us for the heart of rebellion. Forgive us for the heart that wants to do it our way and get ourselves out of every last tribulation or mess. Forgive us for our prayerlessness. Forgive us for trying to purchase and buy things of this world rather than receive the pure, refined gold of you. So if this convicts us as a rebuke individually or even corporately as Westminster Presbyterian Church, let us heed your word and let us 
fall in love in a greater way still to your message of hope and redemption and forgiveness. Oh, we love you, God. We love your spirit that convicts us and preserves us. And oh, how we love the son that gave himself up for me, for us, for this church to stand on the gospel alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.